Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Cass Sunstein, the Carl N. Llewellyn Distinguished Service Professor of Jurisprudence at the University of Chicago Law School. His most recent book is Worst Case Scenarios. Cass, welcome back to Econ Talk. Uh, thank you so much. A pleasure to be here. Now, your new book, Worst Case Scenarios, wrestles with the difficult question of how we cope as individuals and as a society with low risk, high cost disasters. In the opening chapter, you talk about the human propensity to think of something as safe or unsafe, but that's often a very unhelpful perspective. Yeah, I think with uh, environmental risks, uh, risks of crime, risks of terrorism, risks of war, uh, there's a human propensity, which probably has evolutionary roots, either to think it's okay, we don't have to worry, or to have a, a red danger sign on in your head which completely takes over. And this is, evolution may have selected for that, but for uh, people who are really trying to make good decisions and who have a little time, that's a problem. It can get us into a lot of trouble. In our personal lives, I, I find it coming up most often in, with respect to medical issues. People want to know that a drug is safe, that a treatment is safe, that a surgery is safe, that a device is safe, and they get certified that way. We talk about them that way, but of course there's no such thing. Yeah, for an, an individual doctor or patient or for the Food and Drug Administration, there are gradations of risk. It's not as if there's an on-off switch. And so uh, if you're the sort of person who's willing to think hard about probabilities, which is when the stakes are high, probably a good idea, you, you should look at the magnitude of the danger. And it's never, almost never, no risk at all. And uh, it's rarely the case that the probability of disaster is very high, and so we have to think in terms of gradations. Most people aren't so good at that, I've, I've noticed. Uh, as, as a teacher, uh, it's inevitable that you, that you realize this when you talk about uncertainty, and I'm sure you've noticed that too in your experience. Yeah, my law students are tremendous, but in cases involving tort law or contract doctrine or cases involving the environment, to think that you... Uh, you know, think very differently about a case involving 10% uh, probability from a case involving 30% of the probability of some harm. Uh, the mind doesn't naturally work that way, certainly after an event has gone wrong, but also often when we're thinking anticipatorily. People like to think more naturally, it's basically going to be okay, or uh, this is a very hazardous situation. Yeah, I like to think of it either as I can go to sleep or I you have to stay awake. <laughs> right, right. That seems, if you, if you look at mammals generally, that's how they are. Yeah, that's and true. human beings are mammals. Uh, of course, people who are well-trained in this area, uh, professors of statistics, also struggle sometimes with trickier, uh, tricky uh, applications of statistics to real life. Well, there are cases where we can't really assign probabilities with much confidence. So even if you think you should multiply the various outcomes by their probability, if you have a wide band 
where you don't know really the probabilities very well, then you're going to struggle and you might need simplifying rules. And also, even professors of statistics sometimes in their personal lives, they uh, that red light goes on saying danger zone or that white light, I guess, goes on saying all clear. And, and to bring in touch uh, statistical knowledge with uh, the immediacy of a problem, say, involving your own health or a child or uh, a spouse, that, that isn't natural. Yeah, it's very hard. Uh, one of the really interesting parts of your book, which is a theme really that runs, I'd say, throughout the book, is the challenge of developing rules of thumb to improve on uh, this sort of uh, safe-unsafe dichotomy. And one of the examples that you start with is the 1% doctrine, which at first glance seems pretty reasonable. Uh, A 1% chance of something horrific, uh, such as a nuclear attack on an American city by a terrorist, uh, should be treated as a near certainty, uh, was I think the way that, or as a certainty is the way you have uh, Dick Cheney expounding on this, this idea. And there's a certain appeal to that, uh, a 1% chance, which we have a feel for what 1% means, 1 in 100. A 1% chance of millions of people dying is so horrifying, uh, that outcome, if it did happen, that we should spend enormous amounts to prevent it. And at first glance, that seems reasonable, but you point out it's um, a little more complicated. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of attention to Vice President Cheney's 1% doctrine, uh, but it hasn't been analyzed much. And the the sense in it is that if there's, as you say, if there's a 1 in 100 chance of something truly disastrous occurring, to treat that as uh, in the same way we ordinarily treat 1 in 100 chances. That is, you don't really have to worry that much about 1 in 100 chances most of the time. For a terrorist attack in the United States in a major city, uh, you really should worry about that. Uh, on the other hand, with respect to terrorist attacks, as with respect to daily life, there really is a big difference between a 1 in 100 chance and a uh, 100% chance. So what interested me partly about Vice President Cheney's uh, 1% doctrine is it has an overlap with some of another vice president's talk about climate change, where Vice President Gore has often uh, acted as if a uh, small probability of catastrophe should be treated effectively like a certainty in terms of response. And I think both vice presidents are onto something, which is you don't dismiss one in 100 chance, chances. You don't treat them as uh, worth zero attention. But they're they're wrong in thinking that a uh, 1% chance is, is anything like a 100% chance, even in the domain of catastrophe. Well, especially if it's really one in 100,000 or one in a million or one in 100 million. Uh, 1%, you know, it reminds me a little bit of when uh, when entrepreneurs w- would used to come to me when I was in the business school at Washington University and they'd say, well, you know, if I can, I'm going to try to sell my product in China. If I can just get 1% of the market, or, you know, if I could just get my book, you know, as an author, you can relate to this. If I could just get 1% of the book market, you think, well, that's only 1%. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a cautious claim. But, of course, it's really a rather remarkably ambitious claim. Right. So in some of these cases, it's not close to 1%, the real yeah. probability. But, but the deeper point, which I think is the right point, is that uh, there are costs of responding. Let's forget the exact probability. I think the part of your book that I like, uh, particularly was your the subtlety with which you talk about, uh, well, of course, if this is going to be horrible, we have to do something about it, but if doing something about it also has risks. 
Yeah, I mean, think about the uh, response to terrorism or the response to climate change. In both cases, imaginable responses will impose costs and burdens and also have associated risks. So if we did something very aggressive to control greenhouse gases, uh, that would produce a certainty of, of some adverse effects and with some probability, very serious risks. Um, the remote risks, which are not zero, are risks of real international instability as a result of the uh, economic distress that, that much of the world would experience if we had aggressive regulation of greenhouse gases. At the less extreme end would be just uh, if energy prices jump, uh, poor people especially are uh, going to be less able to have uh, have protection against uh, those natural and other uh, situations that make it necessary to use energy. So the cost of responding aggressively to climate change includes risks, some high, some low, and so too with responses to terrorism. They may be civil liberties risks, risks to, that the government will abuse them. They may be risks that are, that are in the same national security risks so that some imaginable and actually actual responses to terrorism threaten to increase uh, terrorist risks of another kind. So one reason why it's especially important to uh, d to distinguish between risks of different probability is that the, the response will have different costs and burdens, and we have to know what that is. We also have to know whether the response will Im Im impose risks of equal or larger magnitude. And as you point out, we often have trouble keeping those unanticipated or potential or future costs and benefits in mind, we, we tend to focus rather dramatically uh, psychologically on one side of the equation. Um, and this comes out rather nicely in your discussion of how differently we've approached terrorism and climate change. So in the case of terrorism, we've spent hundreds of billions of dollars, which would have been unimaginable on September 10th. Someone proposing precautionary expenditures to avoid terrorism would have had no political chance of success. And yet after September 11th, we've, we've spent them. In the case of climate change, pr proposed or potential costs of that magnitude are viewed as, as horrifyingly expensive. And we treat those two situations very differently for a whole host of reasons. And I'd, I'd like to hear what uh, some of the reasons are. Yeah, I mean, one thing that seems interesting to me is not long ago, the cost of the Iraq war was about the same as the anticipated cost to the United States of the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, so we had a, basically the, the dollar equivalent, and on some sides of the political spectrum, the thought was Kyoto, yes, Iraq, ridiculous, and on other sides of the political spectrum, it was Iraq, a good, a good bat, and the Kyoto, ridiculous. Uh, I think the explanation is best first pursued by standard economic methods that is looking about rational looking at rational self interest and here the idea would be that Americans have thought not unreasonably that uh, certain steps to protect against uh, climate change would mostly benefit people in other countries in the distant future and cost us uh, a fair bet. So at least the perception, which whether or not true is not an irrational perception, is that climate change um, 
remedies or responses would impose significant costs for speculative benefits, at least for the United States. And if this seems like an odd thought, just recall the fact that uh, no Democratic senator supported the Kyoto Protocol supported ratification of the Kyoto Protocol. Yeah, I think it was, was 98, 98 to nothing against. Is that the right number? Yeah, that's the right number. So uh, the Kyoto Protocol was dead in the water on, on both sides. And the perception, the intuitive perception, was this is going to be very expensive, and at least as drafted, the benefits are speculative. So at first cut, and I'm going to be criticizing this at a moment, at first cut, the climate change uh, uh, inaction is a kind of intuitive cost-benefit analysis with domestic self-interest at the heart of it. For terrorism, by contrast, the thought has been that Americans have a great deal to fear in the short run and that the precautions that the government has taken uh, are not incommensurately expensive in light of the anticipated benefits. So a rough-and-ready cost-benefit analysis, which has the uh, the risks of terrorist attack, which Americans have perceived as quite high after 9-11, foremost in mind, and so go for it. So the first crack at it says that this, the differential reactions are, a part, are just a kind of rational, whether or not correct, uh, cost-benefit analysis with domestic concerns at the heart of it. In the end, I don't think that's right, though, and you get at the, the heart of it just with your question, which is if you know, on September 10th, 2001, a politician had had proposed the sorts of things the country has gone for. It would have been perceived as madness, you know, such extreme hysteria about the risk of terrorism that that there would be no domestic constituency for it. So the first thing we have to say is that the salient event, the single salient event on September 11th, had a massive effect on the intuitive cost-benefit analysis. And there's no comparable cost-benefit analysis uh, driven by a salient event for climate change. There's an effort by political entrepreneurs, uh, altruistic as well as self-interested, to say Hurricane Katrina was kind of climate change as 9-11, but, but that, that didn't work for various reasons. So the first thing to be said is that if there's, in the domain of worst-case thinking, if there's an event that has a lot of national salience, and you can think of that in your personal life too, it will often assume tremendous importance, maybe more importance than rational analysis suggests, and so the behavioral economic point, as opposed to the neoclassical economic point, is the uh, existence of an available salient event can have a, a big effect on people's responses to worst-case scenarios. We had that for terrorism. We didn't have that for climate change, and that made all the difference. Uh, the second thing, which is a cousin of availability, the availability heuristic, is that uh, when there's a, a, an event that has, gets emo- people's emotions really going, then they often neglect probability altogether, and they just think how terrible the outcome would be without thinking about the uh, the likelihood that it's going to come to fruition. So for really bad events in private life, and think about maybe medical scares, or really events in public life, and think maybe about Saddam Hussein having done something against us, uh, the probability tends to be neglected in the case of an emotionally gripping outcome. And terrorist attacks really are that. Climate change, notwithstanding the efforts of many environmentalists, it just doesn't have the emotional grip on us that uh, people with a bomb arriving in New York City or Washington, D.C. or Boston 
uh, has. Climate change seems more, it's harder to visualize, it's more gradual. So in addition to the available event, there's uh, probability neglect is driving the reaction to one, uh, producing a great deal of concern. And the third thing I'd like to say to give a kind of capsule summary of why these are so fascinatingly different is um, is uh, the importance of outrage to people's reactions to worst-case scenarios. Uh, Orwell kind of got it with his description of the two minutes hate directed against uh, Emmanuel Goldstein in 1984. Uh, so if there's a, a, a person who is responsible for uh, the creation of a risk, that can be a tremendous magnifier on people's attention to the worst-case scenario. And if there isn't a face or a person associated with it, that can be a, a diminishing factor. Now, climate change doesn't have a face. It's really humanity uh, to the extent that it's a human creation, um, whereas terrorism, it does have a face, and uh, Osama bin Laden is the face, or al-Qaeda is the face there. And, and that can... Uh, very much affect people's willingness to uh, incur burdens if they're mad. And that really helps explain the difference between terrorism and climate change. Well, those are all really nice examples. I, one could argue that, just to defend the neoclassical viewpoint for a minute, although I'm going to uh, try to knock it down as well, but you could argue, well, September 10th, yes, it would have been hard to get people to take their shoes off before they got onto an airplane. And personally, I think it should be hard on September 12th, but um, it's somehow we seem to have succumbed to that. But you could argue, well, after September 11th, we got new information, and we've rationally um, increased our assessment of the probability of a future terrorist attack. And similarly, you could argue that Osama bin Laden is, is a useful thing. This this putting a face on outrage is good because, well, otherwise we might just ignore it, and this forces us to be aware of it, and et cetera. But I have to confess – it can't be the whole story. I'll, I'll give you a personal example you can react to. Shortly after September 11th, I was invited to give a talk at the University of Georgia. I was living in St. Louis at the time, so I, I flew into Atlanta, and I was nervous. I was nervous about flying. My wife was nervous about flying so close to September 11th. And I made sure the second I touched down in Atlanta to call her to let her know I was safe, and, and I – I still do that. I usually call shortly after landing to let my wife know that I'm fine, and I'm sure I'm not alone. After landing in Atlanta, I got on a shuttle, a small van, to ride to Athens, Georgia, where the University of Georgia is. And I found myself going at high speeds on a rural two-lane highway at, at night. It was, I think it was raining, and I started sort of laughing at myself because, of course – as you point out in the book and is, is well known, mm. driving even in, after 9-11 is probably much more dangerous, certainly than flying, and certainly on a two-lane rural road in the rain. And um, yet when I got to Athens, I didn't uh, breathlessly tell my wife that, yes, I was fine. Mm. And incidentally, the Holiday Inn in Athens, where I think I stayed, I think it was a Holiday Inn, they were also very worried about terrorism, which I found vaguely amusing because I don't think Athens was going to be the next target, but just in case, they were uh, vigilant and on the, on the ready. So I do think we have trouble as human beings uh, assessing risk accurately. We do uh, have problems with what you call the availability heuristic. Could you just explain that again for people who haven't heard the term? Yes. Uh, the availability heuristic, which is part of the 
series of findings for which uh, Daniel Kahneman got the Nobel Prize in Economics, says that when people are assessing probabilities, uh, they don't work as statisticians. They think, can I think of an example in which the event came to fruition? And if you can think of an easy example, then the probability judgment will be driven up accordingly. And if you can't, you won't. So people typically believe that more people die from homicides than from suicides, though the opposite is true. More people actually die from, from suicides than homicides. And the reason is that homicides are very salient, so they're available. Suicides, less so. People typically think that more people die from accidents than diseases, though the opposite is true. More people die from diseases, and it's because accidents are very salient. So it's easy in experimental settings to show that if there's a, an available thing in the head, that will drive a probability judgment. So the prediction would be that after some sort of uh, uh, salient event, let's say uh, in the future some sort of genetically modified food creates a problem, or there's a nuclear power plant, this isn't hypothetical or future, the Chernobyl and Three Mile Island events, those had huge effects on public judgments about nuclear power. And this is not irrational to use the availability heuristic. So uh, behavioral economists don't talk about irrationality. They talk about bounded rationality, which is pretty good for people who have limited time. So boundedly rational people use these mental shortcuts uh, to to make judgments about probability, and availability is a really important one. Uh, You made a great point, which is after 9-11, it could be said for those who believe in rationality with a capital R that people are just updating. And on September 10th, they hadn't had any events of terrorist attack in recent memory. And then after that uh, catastrophe, there was uh, rational updating. Um, and it's not simple to show that that's a false story. But we can show that even several years after the 9-11 attack, people thought there was a very high probability that they or someone they knew would be killed in the next year in a terrorist attack. You know, Something like 20 or 30 percent, they thought that some, they or someone they knew would be killed in a terrorist attack. This is Americans in various different parts of the country. And so people have had a, a very high sense of the personal threat from terrorism in a way that really is very hard to justify in terms of what such information as there is. Um, it is the case that after the 9-11 attack, almost as many people died from foregoing air travel in favor of uh, driving. And uh, the statistical analysis, even you know a short time after 9-11, would have, been, would have to have been that driving is at least not uh, safer than flying. Right. And yet people happily drive, aren't scared, and many still, including me, I confess, there's a part of the brain that says, "Uh uh-oh, flying, terrorism. Well, and and also driving, I'm at the wheel, uh, induces for some of us a feeling of comfort that we don't have at an airplane, although I don't worry about about flying for that reason, but I know some people do. Yes, it's true that a feeling of personal control can be uh, uh, diminish feelings of, of risk even in cases in which statistically that's just not sensible. 
although I will say I think it is sensible to drive a little bit more than, than in the past because of the added time costs of, of flying. I find myself uh, considering drives that I normally would have flown on just because of the added cost of time. Yeah. That, that, and, that can be rational. Yeah, t- t- time and inconvenience yeah, of having uh, to be in those long lines. Stress. Sure. Uh, <laughs> Even, uh, uh, half an hour can be spent pleasantly yep. in a car, maybe not so pleasantly in a line. This is true. Now, you give a very nice uh, case study. Uh, you know, inevitably in these situations, there are very few data points. Probably for the that's probably for the best. Uh, we should be grateful for that. But you have a nice two two data point uh, comparison in in the book between the Kyoto Protocol and the Montreal Protocol, and how differently. Uh, the political actors reacted to the ozone threat versus the climate change threat. Walk through that example and, and highlight some of the political economy. Yeah, I'll tell you what interested in me interested me in this is that uh, a lot of people have been pushing the Montreal Protocol, which uh, led to something very close to a ban on ozone depleting chemicals, as a as an explanation of why the climate change problem can be solved if only we follow a precedent. And uh, Vice President Gore said that in the famous movie, and lots of people have been saying that. Uh, and there's an oddity here, which is which is doesn't go to Vice President Gore's point, but is just worth exploring, which is the United States under. President Reagan was very aggressive in in attacking the problem of ozone depletion at the same time that Rush Limbaugh on the radio was saying that this is you know a non problem and hysteria uh President Reagan turned out to be pushing much more aggressively than europe in in handling the ozone depletion problem, so the political economy of it seems like this that uh Republicans were Political Republicans, that is the ones in Washington, were very concerned about the ozone depletion problem, pushing Reagan, who didn't need a lot of pushing, incidentally, to to take this problem seriously, at the same time that Europe was somewhere between indifferent and recalcitrant. And on Kyoto, England, the United Kingdom, has been quite aggressive, but the U.S. has been recalcitrant and indifferent, and the Democrats, too. So whatever you hear now, uh, the Democrats were not pushing at all for ratification of Kyoto. On the contrary, they were opposed to it. And here's the explanation that uh, the Kyoto, well, let's start with Montreal. The Montreal Protocol, it turned out, cost the U.S. about $21 billion. Significant, but uh, not massive compared to other federal expenditures. In or return, compared to the benefits, as you Compared to out. the benefits, that's what I'm going to get to. Uh, the Council of Economic Advisors came into the White House at a crucial moment and said, in terms of cataracts and skin cancer, this is a tremendous bargain for the United States. It's so much a bargain that if the U.S., the world's leading producer of ozone-depleting chemicals, phased out those chemicals in a short time, that unilateral action would be justified for the United States. So the U.S., if it took action on its own, high benefits, relatively low costs, if the U.S. could get the rest of the world to agree, then our costs would be the same as if we acted unilaterally, and our benefits would jump because our citizens would be so much less vulnerable to skin cancer and cataracts. The, the, this is a nice case where 
uh, an economic analysis by the Council of Economic Advisors had a, a, a crucial effect on the White House's ultimate conclusion. Might be the only case, Cass. <laughs> I, mean, I don't want to be cynical, but sometimes I start to wonder whether the role of the Council of Economic Advisors uh, is to employ economists. But. Well, let's take it, whether or not typical, it's a nice model yes, yes. of, of what, what we might be able to expect in a happier future. Uh, by contrast, the Kyoto, so let's, let's see the the ozone one as something where Republicans, as much as Democrats, were driving for aggressive environmental protection because the numbers suggested that our domestic self-interest required aggressive action. By contrast, the Kyoto Protocol uh, would have cost, um, at, on contemporaneous numbers, about, uh, upwards of $300 billion dollars. And incidentally, the Kyoto Protocol, the U.S. would have borne the lion's share of the costs. Somewhere between 50% and 80% of the worldwide cost would have been borne by the United States entirely. So the the big loser in terms on the cost side of the Kyoto Protocol was the United States, and you know, well over 10 times the cost of the Montreal Protocol. By contrast, what would the United States have gotten from the Kyoto Protocol. Well, it turns out that because the developing world was entirely excluded from the emissions restrictions, the United States, as a first approximation, would have gotten zero in terms of monetized benefits from the Kyoto Protocol. Maybe as a second cut, it would have gotten $12 billion, something like that, on some of the analyses. So we would have spent $325 billion in return for $12 billion. And it's not mysterious on reflection why we would have gotten so little, because the nations that were regulated, that is, European nations, Japan was included, the U.S., were basically uh, freezing their emissions around 1990 levels. The existing stock of greenhouse gases would be affected not at all. And the developing world, where the greenhouse gas increases are occurring, wouldn't be controlled at all. The the reduction in anticipated warming by 2100 was going to be very small, according I mean, to one estimate, 0.03 C. So if we're spending $325 billion to get a reduction in anticipated warming of 0.03 C by 2100, that is, from the standpoint of domestic self-interest, a really terrible deal. We'd still lose Florida. Uh, an outcome that I have to say I'm a little bit skeptical about, but but the point that you're making, which I think is is the is the is the correct one and the deeper one, is that the impact would be relatively small, the costs would be extremely high, and rational self interest on the part of voters, at least uh, narrow self interest, not including any potential altruism, uh, made that a no a no. It couldn't go forward. Yeah, and so the the crucial fact is that actually there was bipartisan uh, rejection of the Kyoto Protocol. There, there, there was an argument for it, which was that it was the first step toward a broader and more inclusive agreement, and that that's not an evidently crazy argument. But for President Bush to say, you know, this is going to cost us a lot, and it's excluding those parts of the world where the emissions are going through the roof, uh, that was a very plausible thing for him to say. I don't think he should have walked away entirely from the problem. He should have tried to engage the rest of the world. But for him to say Kyoto just doesn't make any sense for us, 
not so bad. And also, even if we're going to be global altruists, which would be uh, in some ways pleasing, but also surprising, uh, Kyoto, from the standpoint of the world, wasn't great right. because it was very expensive and the benefits quite low. But as you point out, and this is also you know, quite interesting, and it's you touch on it, and it's, I think, a, a larger phenomenon than you had space for. A number of state governments have moved in a um, in the direction of reducing uh, global warming emissions, as have a number of cities, at least in the way they talk. Do uh, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's extremely fascinating, and I do have some thoughts on it. Uh, the puzzle is that cities and states, California most notably, are undertaking emissions reductions that are uh, uh, going to cost them and going to deliver no benefits so to them or anyone else just because they're such a small part of the greenhouse gas problem. So the puzzle is why are uh, rational voters and politicians favoring costly and no benefit-free steps. Yeah. I think this is a combination of uh, confusion, hope, and uh, a perceived moral obligation. Uh, the confusion, I think people just don't see, many many people don't see the extent to which the climate change problem just isn't going to get meaningfully addressed without very broad international participation. So it's like with many collective action problems that people think that their own contribution will do something or spur something, even if it won't. So that's the confusion. Uh, the hope, which is uh, a, a noble one, is that uh, if California, say, or some municipality engages in uh, uh, some step that is costly and by itself has no benefits, it will maybe start a cascade, which will ultimately uh, spur international action or play some role in spurring international action. Whether that's a founded hope or just uh, uh, real optimism or a stab in the dark, who knows. And the, the perceived moral obligation, I think, is some of these uh, uh, localities uh, think that you know, this is at least the start of some way of helping people who are especially vulnerable. So one thing to understand is that India and African nations are at really tremendous risk from climate change on the, on the uh, not especially uh, terrifying scenarios. That is, on if we have 2.5 C warming, or a little higher. Uh, the United States probably be a net loser, but not not horrible. Uh, African nations and India are projected as horrible losers, and from that degree of warming, even putting catastrophe to one side. And some of these places, I think, are thinking we have a moral obligation. Now, you won't do anything about the moral obligation if it doesn't uh, spur international action. Um, so I think I think it's confusion, oh. hope, moral obligation. There's one other thing, if I can say, that's yeah, go going ahead. on, which is uh, I, I think there's a sense that if it turns out to be very costly, these steps, then uh, we'll revisit. Yeah. So I would be surprised if California actually ends up imposing massive costs on itself. It seems unlikely. Yeah. I, I think there is a uh, the moral imperative part for some people is very real. Um, you know, to, to stand idly by when something catastrophic is happening, even if your action has a minimal effect, um, 
it seems un, un, unbearable to stand idly by. So better to do something, even something that is that is merely grandstanding. Uh, I think comforts people. Yeah, although it's like a tsunami, giving giving money to help with the tsunami, your nickel probably won't help, but maybe it'll be part of something. That'll well, help. there at least your nickel is going to help a nickel. I, th- I think the real issue here is is, is the question of of delusion. Right. Uh, and, and the unintended consequences part that you talk about in the book, we haven't talked about it so much here, but the idea of pursuing some strategy that that seems on the surface to be m- making the problem better, but in fact might actually make the problem worse. Right. Um, there is a fifth ex- a fifth thought, though, I'll add, and I, I encourage our listeners to provide evidence uh, for this. Uh, I'm sure we have some people on the ground somewhere who can help us with this. The the the, ex, the fifth explanation is is the bootlegger and Baptist story that that Bruce Yandel's talked about in a previous podcast, where uh, politicians exploit our hope, romance, etc., and by looking green, they funnel resources to particularly favored special interests. Just to take a trivial example, um, you know the, the number of people who are standing around at airports as I take my shoes off strikes me as an not making much of a difference. Now, some would say, well, they're, they're there to make you feel better. They don't make me feel better. Maybe they make some people feel better, more secure. Um, I, but I suspect part of the reason is just to swell the bureaucratic ranks of Homeland Security, to swell the coffers of people who make complex x-ray machines, um, which I feel a little bit better about, but maybe not, not a lot better when it turns out that they don't discover a lot of the uh, knives and bomb parts that that people try to smuggle through as a test. So I, I wonder whether the result isn't just, is the cause of this isn't just our ignorance or our hopefulness, but rather something slightly more cynical and sinister. Well, I agree with that generally. So there's no question that in the face of some social risks, the a uh, beneficiary of supposedly responding to it will be a, a, a self-interested group with a stake in the outcome. Think uh, farmers, corn lobby, ethanol. Where, there we go. Yeah, where you uh, supposedly this is going to be wonderful for the environment. That's less clear, but uh, corn. You know lobby. who it is wonderful for? Yeah, that part is clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, and in, in, with respect to genetic modification of food, which is something that doesn't attract a lot of concern in the United States, in Europe, this is a major yep. uh, risk issue. Yes. And the, the, it's, it's protectionism that the, that the European farmers don't want to have to compete with American companies, and they manufacture, so to speak, this risk as a way of scaring people away from buying American products. So uh, no question. I'm, I'm not sure on climate change yet. This this has happened. It will happen, no question. Whether we'll get um, uh, the nuclear lobby, the solar lobby, other people who want government handouts pressing hard on climate change, and, and it's a, it's a, it's you know it's an effort to get a special interest deal. Well, you refer in the book. I think the term you use is worst case entrepreneurs, and it's a really uh, nice concept of the people who. Uh, I don't know how you would describe it, fan the flames of fear is how I describe it. People who exploit either our ignorance about the actual risks of these events or who um, just make them more salient and, and more available to try and steer public policy in the direction that they are in favor of, either out of altruism or self-interest. Yeah. There's no question that the attack on nuclear power 
um, was driven partly by worst-case entrepreneurs who invoked uh, Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, where Three Mile Island, incidentally, was not a disaster, uh, but was a scared people. And the notion of lots and lots of people getting radiated and dying, that's been, uh, worst-case entrepreneurs have attacked the nuclear power industry uh, hard and very successfully. And I guess I think, though I'm not an expert on the technology, that this has not been a great thing for the uh, United States and its development of energy. That is, nuclear power has taken too much of a bum bum rap. Um, In the case of DDT, where uh, Rachel Carson, with her amazingly uh, influential book, Silent Spring, which is in many ways a wonderful book, DDT was worst-cased kind of there, worst-cased. We're going to lose... We're going to lose all the birds. Yeah, we're going to lose it. all the birds. And the vivid narratives of what happened to the birds and such had a very large international impact. And uh, in the U.S., probably the ban on DDT was all things considered justified. But in the developing world, DDT is the most effective and cheapest way of preventing malaria. And worst-case entrepreneurs invoking the risks associated with DDT actually breed a worst case of their own, which is large numbers of human deaths. So frequently there are risks on both sides of social situations. And the worst case entrepreneur, when they're uh, playing with, uh, they're shuffling the cards really fast, they're uh, pressing the worst case that they're concerned with and neglecting the fact that responding to that worst case has worst case scenarios of its own. And that's a fantastic example. I and it, it's one that I've found deeply depressing for, for quite a while. I have to say something speculative about that, though, that I've told the same story you just told, and, and I've and it rings true to me. But there's a part that's a little bit off-putting, and I, may, maybe we can think about why it might be otherwise. Um, in the United States, uh, you know, malaria's mosquitoes are not as big a problem. Uh, we're a much richer society. It's much easier for us to cope with with malaria. We probably had much better alternatives to DDT as a way of controlling mosquitoes, even if they were more costly. Uh, in the third world, in the places that are desperately poor, where, where hundreds of thousands of children die uh, from malaria around the world, it's it's deeply depressing. I don't understand why the United States um, uh, outrage the outrage due to Silent Spring, say, or whatever other factors were involved, why that trumped the deaths of those children in other places. In other words, I could understand why we didn't want to use it here. But my impression is, and maybe we don't know enough about this, the the institutional detail, but my impression is is that we strong-armed, inveigled, leaned on other nations to ban it as well. And why did they listen? Now, why did they respond the way they did? I, I don't know any of the story of that, but I, and if you well, do, but, I'd like to hear it. You know, to the extent that they did respond, which they did, it was an international consensus that DDT was bad. And it was driven partly by legitimate science and partly by um, altruistic environmentalists and partly by just um, an exaggerated fear of the risks and uh, uh, a failure to see the need to 
weigh costs and benefits. Well, I'm going to say something more cynical. And again, I don't know if this is right. It's just I'm thinking out loud here. And I, again, encourage listeners, if you have any information on these things, to send it send it our way. But I, one of the interesting issues that comes up in the book, and again, the title is Worst Case Scenarios, uh, one of the interesting issues that comes up is the role of the political process as an aggregator of individual preferences, what you called earlier the collective action problem. So in the United States, uh, politicians respond pretty much to uh, the voices of the voters. Not always. There's gaps and and things. But as Brian Kaplan has argued in an earlier podcast, we pretty much get what we want. And in the United States, uh, we wanted to get rid of ozone-depleting chemicals because it was a good deal for us. The politicians thought that was wise, and they responded accordingly. In the case of global warming, they, they listen, uh, and we're not so interested, so they are indifferent as well. When we go outside the United States, particularly in poor countries where, where tyranny is common and thugs often rule, the voice of the people doesn't matter. Not nearly as much. It matters somewhat, but it matters a lot less. And I wonder if in malaria, uh, high malaria areas, if the leaders in those countries just said, so what? We'll f- curry favor with the United States and we'll let, our, let those kids die. I don't know. No, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, it's a, a chi- it's a chilling thought, and, and yeah. a much less a much less ominous version of it is is France, and France's embrace of nuclear power. I have no idea. I, I think it, my impression is is that much of Europe is less responsive politically to the voices of of the average voter, and I wonder if France's embrace of nuclear power is either because the average French citizen is less frightened by Chernobyl and Three Mile Island than we are, or because their political process is different? I don't know the answer to that either. Well, I know I can tell you a little bit, which is de Gaulle made a decision very early that this is the way to go. And de Gaulle was very powerful and very trusted at the time and didn't face intense opposition, at least. And once the country was nuclear power, uh, very hard to change it for various reasons. One is that the country's dependent on it. A little like in Finland during the effort to associate cell phones with uh, cancer. Uh, Finland was particularly unresponsive because Nokia, you know, the sure. big industry, is is cell phone. And the so. Finns have a lot of cell phones. Right, and right, right, right. Uh, yeah, that that could be part of it. I I don't know, but it's an interesting interesting question. L- let's turn to um, what we might think of. As another version of the one percent doctrine, I, I can't decide whether it's the same thing or the flip side. It's probably both, uh, which seems paradoxical. But mm. but that's the precautionary principle. The precautionary principle is invoked a lot of times to justify various actions to protect us from global warming, or in the case of terrorism, uh, the sim- a similar kind of argument. Um, and yet, you reject that as well. Yes, uh, the precautionary principle is. Very influential internationally. San Francisco has adopted it. Um, wow. Most, <laughs> in, a, in an ordinance. The most aggressive versions say something like um, when cause and effect relationships can't be established, the burden of an activity is, the burden is on the proponent of an activity to show that it's safe. Yeah, better safe than sorry. I mean, what could be more sorry. reliable than that? Um, I think the problem with it is that it uh, forbids the very steps that it requires. 
so that um, the things that the precautionary principle bans are, are banned by the ban. So if you say, for example, that because uh, you have to be better safe than sorry, we can't have nuclear power, that makes sense. But banning nuclear power gives rise to uh, probabilistic risks of various kinds, including climate change. So the ban on nuclear power violates the precautionary principle as well as being compelled by the precautionary principle. Think, for example, of arsenic in drinking water, which uh, some people thought aggressive regulation was justified on precautionary grounds. It's also the case that if you have aggressive regulation of arsenic in drinking water, as uh, Administrator Whitman said, some people are going to be uh, using their own wells to avoid the expense. Full of and, and their they're own full wells, of arsenic, actually. Yeah. yeah, they're full of arsenic. They're really dangerous. So arsenic regulation gives rise to a risk of uh, much more dangerous um, uh, drinking water by people who are probably especially vulnerable to illnesses. In addition, if you increase the expense of an activity such as working, if you impose big costs on the private sector, then uh, some people are going to die because they'll be poorer and less employed. So there's data suggesting a $7 million expenditure will cause at least one death. So uh, you know, $40 million expenditure, which is hardly unusual in the world of regulation, with some probability causes five or six deaths. And that or more, and that violates the precautionary principle. So my problem with the precautionary principle is that taken seriously in its strong versions, it uh, is incoherent. It's not that it, as some uh, Americans have said, that it forbids progress and is therefore stultifying. It's that it, it, it is paralyzing. It bans action and inaction and everything in between. Right. It basically, it's the old... Um Lay, lay in your bed, and of course, unless there's a chance a, a meteorite would, would hit your house. Right, lay in your bed, and <clears throat> and if you lay in your bed, that's probably not going to be very safe. For it's one thing, you're not going to be making money, and uh, poor is dangerous. For another thing, you're not going to be getting exercise, and that's pretty bad. You're not going to be socializing, and that can be risky. Yep. No, no, life life is tough. Life, yeah. is, uh, life is full of risks, and it's very hard for us to, to deal with that. I, so in a story in the news recently, I've been thinking about a lot uh, that's related to this, and I'd like to get your thoughts on it. Uh, it was a tragedy this past summer in minor league baseball. A coach was hit by a line drive, mm. and he died. It was horrible. Uh, as far as I know, it's never happened. It certainly never happened at the major league level that a coach who's not on the field to play coaches. This was a first base coach. Um, as far as I know, it's never happened, and this horrible tragedy happened. This fine person was killed, and the general managers are meeting right now or just finished their meeting, and they've decided that they will probably require coaches to wear some kind of helmet uh, while they're in the coaching box in response to this salient, as you would say, um, uh, tragedy. And I think the, the feeling I think that most people have is that you know one death is one death too many. And anything we can do to make coaching safer is a good thing. And, of course, the best thing to do would not to have any coaches, mm. um, certainly not to have them drive to the park because, as we know, driving is dangerous. And so it's a remarkable human phenomenon that when these kind of events happen, we have such a natural, uh, visceral instinct to remove the cause. Now, in this case, you know, wearing helmets is just – there's a sm the expense is relatively small – um, although I, I wonder whether coaches will take more care 
or less care of avoiding line drives if they know they're wearing a helmet, which is a, a different type of unintended consequence. Yeah. Um, I want to know what the probability of being hurt from a line drive is, if it's, what, one in a million or less? I think it's about uh, one in a million. Uh, as uh, far as I know, to be killed, uh, as far as I know, you know there's, there have been hundreds of thousands of baseball games in the, since the start of organized baseball in 19, late 1800s. And I think, again, this is probably the first time it's happened. Um, it's a very remote thing. When it happens, though, it's unbearable. It's so sad. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tragedy. But uh, people die in automobile accidents, and the proper response to that is not to stop driving. Uh, there are regulations that do make a lot of sense. And if this is a costless precaution or nearly costless, then by all means. Yeah, it's a but good if deal. It's, an irritant or worse, or if it actually doesn't create additional safety. I tend to think that uh, offhand, this is probably very hard to defend on all things considered grounds. Yeah, I don't know, but I, it's it's something to think about. It's a little like the uh, shark scare of yep. a few summers ago, where mm-hmm. there were actually laws proposed and a lot of precautions taken when the risk of a shark attack was so tiny, probably not worth worrying about. But there'd been a number of stories uh, in the press about it, and it, and people, I think, as in the case of terrorism, if you'd asked swimmers to assess the risk, uh, they would have grossly overstated the risk. Although they kept swimming, which is which is you know it's it's so interesting which of these events we we do tend to f- uh, filter out, and those of which we do become over over anxious about. It, well, it relates, doesn't it, a lot to medical advice and full disclosure where uh, often uh, uh, a medical procedure that's plenty safe enough will have a probability of disaster associated with it that's way higher than the risk uh, that you face if you're an umpire of a baseball game or a coach of a baseball game, mm-hmm. way higher than that of someone from shark attacks. Yeah. And, uh, some, and the distress of getting the information is sometimes just not worth it. And it may also uh, bias decisions. We talked in a show uh, earlier with Arnold Kling about a test that's imperfect for a very rare medical condition. Uh, you get a positive result that you that you the test says you have the disease, um, but it turns out that because the test is not 100% effective and accurate, maybe only 95% accurate, but the frequency of the disease is one in a thousand. Uh, which it is, I think, in the case of lupus, the example that was given. So even though the test is 95% mm. accurate, which seems like it's very accurate, right. uh, getting a positive result in the test means your odds of having the disease is 2%. Oh, now, 2% is, I don't know, it's it's higher than the actual, it's a lot higher than the actual uh, percentage in the randomly in the population, but it's not very likely. Right. And so the informational content, and it, as Arnold pointed out, the treatment for it at that point is there's nothing to be done. So testing for it's really a bad thing. It, all it does is is convince a bunch of people that they're they're at risk when in fact they're not. Right. So it's a really a disastrous thing. It's it's a very interesting area, the medical application of these principles. Right. And probably it's good to distinguish between medical applications or what people should be thinking about in their daily lives and government responses. Mm-hmm. Where governments, because they're dealing on a population wide basis probably are definitely legitimately concerned with one in 100,000 risk or less. But for most of us, most of the time, it probably doesn't make worth, it doesn't make any sense because the ang- associated anxiety is itself a cost that 
for many that exceeds the precaution benefits. And appears and appears to be not so good for you either. Uh, right, right. In it can have itself. adverse health effects. Yeah. That's right. Uh, we're almost out of time. I, I want to close with with an issue you raised toward the end of the book, uh, which is uh, you really do a. Uh, a very, very thorough job explaining and exploring an issue that I think mystifies most people, uh, which is the area of discounting and how to handle situations such as uh, global warming, although it arises also in terrorism, where we're going to bear large costs today and the benefits are going to come way into the future, perhaps 50 to 100 years into the future, and the beneficiaries are then uh, are unborn, many of them, as a result. Uh, and I want to read a quote you have in the introduction of the book, although the main discussion of it comes toward the end of the book. Here's the quote. If human history is any guide, the future will be much richer than the present, and it makes no sense to say that the relatively impoverished present should transfer its resources to the far wealthier future. And if the present generation sacrifices itself by foregoing economic growth, it is likely to hurt the future too, because long-term economic growth is li- likely to produce citizens who live healthier, longer, and better lives. And that's an end quote. And that really is a very nice summary to me of an issue that I, I don't understand why it's, it's ignored. Um, but it's often ignored in these discussions, particularly in the area of global warming, where the costs are now, the benefits are in the future, and there's a debate about whether we should discount those benefits. Um, and I think what people get confused about, and you do a, a very nice job in the book of keeping them separate, is discounting lives versus discounting money. A uh, hundred deaths a hundred years from now may be no different than a hundred deaths today, but a hundred dollars a hundred years from now is very different from a hundred dollars right. today and should be kept separate. So talk about that. Okay, this is one of, I think, the great issues at the intersection of uh, economics, public policy, and philosophy, and ordinary intuitions. Uh, uh, with a, a dollar now is worth a lot more than a dollar 20 years from now, partly because you can invest it, make it grow, and partly because people seem to have a pure time preference for money. Well, you might not live to see it. You might not live to see it at all, so yeah. that's another reason. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, so, so for enjoy men- the benefits today, and the future benefits yeah. are uncertain. Yeah, so uh, if if you had um, uh, a choice between a good month of happiness and health next month, or a good month of happiness and health four years from now, chances are, I think, most people would choose it soon for various reasons. Um, for purposes of policy, we have to figure out how to think about uh, valuation of, of future costs and benefits and of future uh, lives. Uh, I think the first point to make is the, the one you made, which is that uh, the future is, is in all probability going to be much richer than the present. So if the arc of human history is any guide, that's just the case. So the idea that we should be greatly concerned about future people in India, say, uh, and not so concerned about present people in India makes no sense because future people in India are in all likelihood going to be richer than present people in India. Now, whether we should uh, discount lives and what that means even is is needs a lot of thinking. One quick thought is that uh, a life is a life and that there's reason for 
of what I would call intergenerational neutrality in the sense that someone 100 years from now is not worth less in any large sense than someone now. So, so that's very important to see, that we should be uh, as concerned about future people as present people, supposing they're going to be people. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it does not follow from intergenerational neutrality that we should be investing a ton now in preventing some subset of risks that they might face. So suppose we're worried that nuclear power will eventually threaten them uh, because of the waste disposal problem, and therefore we shouldn't have nuclear power. One risk is if we take tremendous precautions with respect to nuclear power, let's say we invest lots of money, the future will be poorer, and and that then they'll be worse off. So if we do, do a lot to expend current resources for the sake of the future. The future may hate us and think, why did they save all that money when they could have been making for more prosperity, which would have made our lives longer and healthier and happier? So uh, the, a lot of people don't like the notion of discounting the future, and I think there's a sound moral intuition there. But we have to separate the idea of intergenerational neutrality, which is good, from the idea of uh, treating a dollar today as worth no more than a dollar in 2100, which may be a really bad thing to do from the standpoint of people in 2100, who would, who would like it if we do a lot of things that make them more prosperous. Because prosperous, not because prosperity is the only thing, but because prosperity can be turned into a lot of human goods. Maybe one way of bringing this home is to think that a lot of people are, who are concerned about climate change don't like the idea of uh, discounting future uh, streams of health and m- money and think that, you know, we shouldn't discount. But the, and I am for an international agreement to control climate change. I should be clear on that. But uh, we don't want to um, uh, undertake extremely aggressive measures which would impoverish the current world because, in part, because if we impoverish the current world, then we uh, make a, make our, our descendants suffer a lot. Yeah. No, I, I, it fascinates me. I, I think the right, the right way to think about it is what would they want? And the answer is sometimes they'd want us to take precautions, but a lot of times they'd say, no, grow, and we'll come up, you will come up, people will come up along the way with ways to cope with these things if we're wealthy enough. Um, and it's there's obviously a trade-off. It doesn't mean, you know, you should never, we should never control any pollution because if we forego economic growth. Now, that's right. stupid. But it's equally stupid to say um, we should never allow any pollution because that would, would harm future generations. Yes. The, the issue that, uh, that I think is relevant where, where the future generation thing does bite is uh, irreversibility. Yes. Obviously, if we destroy the Grand Canyon or um, uh, the, the, the starlit sky – and deprive future generations of that. There aren't good substitutes for that. Right. But skin cancer, I think, will probably cure in a hundred years. And and I, I not, again, that doesn't mean we should we should have ignored CFCs, um, ozone depleting chemicals. But but it's that, that's relevant. The fact yeah, that we might solve these things is that's relevant. Great. And uh, I devote a chapter of the problem of irreversibility, which seems to me extremely interesting, important topic, which where uh, if you are going to take a step that deprives people of options in the future, 
that's uh, no light thing if the thing is and and that does bear on on many problems but we shouldn't think that an irreversible loss is an infinitely valuable loss there's work to be done in assigning value to it but it's it's an independently important topic the only other point i'd make on on this issue is uh, we care about our descendants and that that fact is often ignored we transfer tons of resources into the future already not not in through the estate uh, through through inheritance, but just through the fact that the amount of time and effort we spend on our children and loved ones is is immense, yep. and so it, it, one must keep that in perspective. Yes, it's so. Yeah, it is so. My guest today has been Cass Sunstein of the University of Chicago Law School. He is the author of Worst Case Scenarios. Cass, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Much enjoyed it. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.